Jordan, you ready? Charlie, I'm always ready. Let's get it. This is crazy. This is absolutely insane. Such at a loss for words. I mean, I'll find them, don't worry. Do I like playing against adversity? Man, I just like playing, period. I'm just I'm shocked and I'm so proud of our guys, man. Unbelievable. Putting the crest on every single time means something to me. Hi, I'm Crystal Dunn from the U.S. Women's National Team, and you're listening to the U.S. Soccer Podcast. Charlie, what's going on? How is Cape Cod with the family? We've been doing a lot of biking, making s'mores by the fire pit. We started a little garden, just going to the beach and swimming. I mean, the boys are really enjoying it, and, you know, it's really nice. What about you, Jordan? I know we're on the same time zone, finally. How was the move that? back to Columbus? I know. It it was good. You know, it's hard. Whenever – it was it was a such a blessing to be home for that amount of time and to get to spend that time with my family. And you know me. I love the mountains in Colorado, so I'm going to miss that. But being back in Columbus makes me so excited – because this job, I, I'm just excited about my job here and to be in this city and just get to explore the city a little bit. So now that I'm back and it's nice in summer, so all is good. That that is wonderful to hear, and I know you're coming back into, you know, uh, the nice the nice weather. People are outside. Um, it's a good time to be back in Columbus. Exactly, exactly. And we got a, a new episode for everybody. This is gonna be a good one, Charlie. I'm pumped. I'm really pumped. Yeah. So this episode of the U.S. Soccer Podcast, we are excited to welcome three-time U.S. Men's National Team World Cup player, National Soccer Hall of Famer, and current U.S. Soccer Sporting Director Ernie Stewart to the show. But before we get to Ernie, let's catch up on some news. MLS is back. Major League Soccer announced last week that it will return to play with a World Cup-style tournament to take place in Orlando, from July 8th to August 11th at Disney's Wild World of Sports Complex. Games will be broadcast on the ESPN Fox and Univision family of networks. Jordan, yes. tell me you're not pumped. Oh, I can't because that would be a lie. I am so pumped. This is this is amazing. And not only do we have MLS's back, but we have NWSL Challenge Cup Tournament happening in Utah. And it's starting in less than 10 days, Charlie. June 27th is the first day of games. And the North Carolina Courage are going to be playing the Portland Thorns. And it's going to be aired on the new television partner, CBS. They're partnering with NWSL. And that game's at 12.30 p.m. Eastern time. June 27th. I'm saying it again because you must be watching this. It's going to be. Oh, I'll a, be tuning in. Yeah, such a good game. So, so much soccer happening here in the U.S., which is exciting for you and I, right? Exciting for everyone listening to this podcast. And thoughts about how this would be for you. You played in MLS. I played in NWSL. Would you like it being in a secluded place playing a tournament like this? No question. I mean, I would be excited to get back on the pitch and compete, to be honest. The, tur- the tournament style format is new for MLS, and I think it'll bring out the best in players. I expect it to be super competitive because everyone will be rearing to go with everything that's going on in our country. COVID-19, uh, the racism, the protests, the riots. Guys are going to relish being yeah. in an isolated environment where they can just focus on playing. Like the love of the game. Back to when you were 10 years old, out just practicing by yourself in the backyard this is what it's going to be like just going out there 
and competing. I love that. And all eyes will be on this tournament because it's the first taste of live action that you know everyone's been craving in this country. So I cannot wait for this tournament. It is going to be MLS's back tournament is going to be fun. The Challenge Cup is going to be fun. It almost makes you wish that we could do some kind of reality show around this because (laughs) all the players are going to be in one spot. Um, And you and I talked about it earlier in the week, too. We we know so many people on each team that it would be hard not to social like interact with them. But Mm -hmm. from a social distance, you can like see your pals, give them elbow knocks and stuff like that. But um I mean, just the fact that soccer is coming back is exciting. And it's already back, right? In Europe, the English Premier League and the Championship returned to action this week with a full slate of games of matches on tap for this weekend. U.S. fans will have an opportunity to see Christian Pulisic, DeAndre Yedlin, Tim Ream, Matt Miazga, and Dwayne Holmes in action once again as the English season continues. Just as things are getting back underway in England, well, they're almost done in Germany. The season is just wrapping up. After the midweek games this week, there will only be two more match days left in the season, which are the next two Saturdays. While this wasn't an unconventional season in Germany, one thing still remains true. Bayern Munich (laughs) won the Bundesliga for the eighth straight time after winning 1-0 at Werder Bremen. Are you kidding me? Eight straight times. That's ridiculous. And you can On feel sa- it in the game too. The pressure, yeah. The, the players just wrote, rose to the occasion. That's that's Munich. I mean, they're eight straight years. I mean, can we get some competition for Bayern Munich here? <laughs> uh, on Saturday, June 20th, Tyler Adams and RB Leipzig will face 17-year-old Gio Reyna's Borussia Dortmund. With a win, Dortmund will secure a second-place finish in the Bundesliga. Also, Weston McKinney, Schalke will host John Brooks in Wolfsburg. Wolfsburg are currently sitting in sixth and are aiming to secure a spot in the Europa League next season. Mind you, Weston just scored in the 59th minute in a 2-1 loss to Eintracht Frankfurt on Wednesday. So big ups to the Americans in the Bundesliga. Also, I wonder what Weston would choose as his goal song if he got the choice. We asked Tyler, so maybe Weston needs to tell us. Well, we're going to ask him. We're going to ask him (laughs) because we're going to have him on this podcast. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Uh, And still, the battle at the bottom is intriguing as Josh Sargent and Werner Bremen and Alfredo Morales and Fortuna Dusseldorf are fighting against each other to avoid relegation. Zach Steffen, I know he's getting closer. Mm -hmm. He's he's spoke to us. He's on the the training field, just hasn't done anything uh, relative to goalkeeper training per se, but he's getting closer. So that's, that's exciting. Um, and, and with everything boiling to a point in this country, uh, we're starting to see people take notice and, and are aware of, of why people are protesting and why um, black people in this country have had such a difficult time that it, it isn't equal. People aren't seen as equals. And, Finally, we want to thank everyone for the great feedback we received from last week's roundtable on race with Crystal Dunn, Kobe Jones, Jessica McDonald, and Zach Steffen. It was a powerful conversation, and if you haven't read it yet, we encourage you to go back on your podcast feed and listen to it, or watch the full video on U.S. Soccer's YouTube. This podcast will go live on Friday, June 19th, and as we continue to talk about issues of race in this country... I wanted to raise awareness about the importance and history of this day for the black community and not just the black community, for everyone in this, in this country. Juneteenth, 
On June 19, 1865, Union General Gordon Granger led thousands of federal troops to Galveston, Texas, to announce that the Civil War had ended and the, the slaves had been freed. Wonderful. I think the idea of recognizing this holiday is vital in acknowledging our history as a country and to never forget how Black people were treated in the past. We have come a long way as a nation since then, but I, I still feel, and I think everyone else does, we have a long way to go, a long way. I believe we should recognize and honor this holiday, but not celebrate it. Jordan, do you feel the same way? Yeah, I, I do. Actually, as you read that stat about June 19th, 1865 and the word that slaves have been freed, I got chills, right? Because I, I think that is such a big point in, you know, a big point in this country and changing how we valued humans, how we valued humans. And I think that recognizing it, but also looking back and saying, I can't believe we did that. Right. So I think it is a day that we should recognize. Um, and just thank you for, um, everything, all the conversations we've had and all everything that has happened in the last few weeks, I know we're continuing to go in the right direction here. Absolutely, Jordan. And so now let's get to our esteemed guest. We're recording this on June 17th. On this day, back in 2002, the U.S. defeated Mexico in the round of 16 at the 2002 FIFA World Cup. And we're very pleased to welcome someone who played in that match and continues to have a huge impact on the game in the United States, U.S. Soccer Sporting Director, Ernie Stewart. Ernie, how are you? Thank you so much for joining us all the way from the Netherlands. All the way from the Netherlands. I'm doing well, thank you. Hope the same for you all as well. Yeah, we're doing well. We're really excited to chat with you. And before we get into your current role right now, we want to rewind the tape a little bit. Take Go it back. back to take it back to where it you all do began it, for you. You got to do it like twice or three times. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, your first cap back on December nineteenth, nineteen ninety, versus Portugal. How did that come about? Did you know that you were going to be earning a, a cap that day or getting called in to play in that game? Uh, well, yeah, I, I did know I was going to be called in for that, uh, that game. And it started somewhere in, uh, I want to say before the world cup of 1990 that we, um, the U S soccer federation and myself came in contact with each other, uh, a little bit too late for, uh, the 1990 world cup in Italy, but, um, they said they would keep following me and, um, that at one point, you know, if I did well with my club, uh, team at that time, Willem two, that I would be called in for, uh, for a game. And, yeah, and that, that game against Portugal, it, it happened. We didn't really play much soccer. We ran behind the ball a lot. But uh, other than that, it was great to get a, get a first run with, uh, with, our, uh, with our national team. What, was it a dream to always play for the U.S. men's national team, or were you considering Holland? And were you a part of youth national teams on your, on your way to the full team? No, I actually started pretty late um, uh, playing soccer in, in Holland. So I went to the American school until I was 12 years old and actually didn't get into soccer until 11, 12 years old through my uh, through my nephew. So never really played for uh, national teams, not on the Dutch side, not on the American side, having uh, having two passports. But um, I, I did have a dream of standing up in front of a flag. Um, mm -hmm. But at that moment, I didn't know which flag it was. And uh, I was called into the uh, under-23 team for Holland. I was lucky uh, not to play that game because I was actually injured. 
Um, so I did not play in that game. Otherwise that would have cap tied me and I would have not had the opportunity to play for the United States. And at that moment, you know, I didn't really think about, uh, those things like what that would mean to play for, uh, for a country and that you would be cap tied. And, and the next call in, uh, call up I got was, uh, was the United States to, to play against Portugal. Also there, you know, as, as, a my father, uh, uh, being an American and being a serviceman here in, uh, in, in Europe, um, uh, extremely proud moment, one to get the call up and then, uh, uh, to get back to the question of, did I expect to, uh, uh, play at that moment? Once I got in, Bob did tell me like, uh, I was going to play a role in that game. So I was thrilled to, uh, to, uh, step on the field and, and represent our country against, uh, against Portugal. And not only did you get that one cap, but Ernie, you are one of 17 players who have earned over 100 caps for the men's national team. Growing up, did you ever dream or imagine that that would be you one day? Uh, no, I don't. I don't dream in stats or anything like that. I do dream in the sense of, uh, um, you know, I want to be a professional soccer player and I wanted to play. I, I, I grew up uh, in, in Holland for most of my life and and, and watch World Cups and, and just saw what it, what, what it meant to players to play for a national team. So um, I certainly dreamt of it uh, in, in certain ways, but uh, in the end, you can never imagine that, you know, um, I'd be sitting here today and actually be uh, being interv- interviewed by, by both of you in the, with the sense of that I played 101 caps for our, for our national team. No, never thought that. Does it seem like that was, what do those feelings come up when you hear those stats and you know that that was your career, right? It's such a historic career, one that a lot of players like Charlie and myself dreamt, you know, also dreamt of having a a career that spanned that much for the national team. How much pride do you have when you look back over those numbers? Um, Difficult question. Uh, I don't look back much. Um, so that's, that's one thing I, I can't say I am proud, but now to say that I go back and look at tapes or anything like that of myself is, is far from that. Um, there are certain moments within my career that I'm, that I'm certainly proud of and playing, uh, 101 caps I am proud of. Uh, but to say, I think about that daily No, I have too much to do and it's not in my character, uh, to do that. But, um, you know, I hope one day um, when things uh, start to slow down that you can actually look back and, and think about those things that uh, that were, um, you know, that defined your career. And, and one of those things is then uh, being able to play that many games for your national team and, and playing in three World Cups. Uh, but once again, right now, it's not really something I look back at. Well, I'm glad you don't look back because we're bringing you back to make sure you, you get a you get a you get to relive some of these moments and think about them. You 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 progressed to have become an integral part of the team leading up to the 1994 World Cup, and went on to score a mo- monumental goal in that tournament in the 2-1 win against Colombia on June 22nd, 1994, three days before my birthday. So I'll always remember that World Cup. It was my first, and and that game. What do you remember about that game and, and the tournament as a whole p- being played in the United States? Um, you know, just uh, p- playing in our own country at that time uh, was was amazing. Uh, the Federation really took care of us when it came to, uh, you know, our training camp before and and uh, and going into the into the World Cup. I remember the, the day before the first game, you know, the whole O.J. Simpson saga and that we're all sitting in front of the TV and 
um, not thinking about the game at that moment. And then I do remember walking out against uh, against Switzerland and that that really, really hit me. And that did take me back um, to my my younger years and, and what I was talking about, seeing World Cups and people standing in front of the in front of the flag and 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 and, and singing the national anthem. And, you know, that that made me that moment was a proud moment. Um, um, and, and then, you know, leading up in that tournament and not being a country that was reckoned with at that moment. Um, we were always known as, as good athletes, but actually to be able to win games was something else. So, um, uh, when the game against Colombia came around and, you know, we went through this, uh, this phase where, and, and if, if you do look back at it at, at one moment, uh, they had a lot of chances going into it. And I actually, I watched it now because I was watching the, uh, um, the documentary on, uh, on, uh, unfortunately, uh, uh, the person that lost his life in this, uh, life in this, uh, in this game. And, and those moments do come back, but then you also see the pressure that Colombia had at that, uh, at that moment in that game. So, um, you know, in the end we, uh, it was fantastic to play in front of our own, uh, uh fans, uh, play in front of a hundred thousand people, which I'd never dreamt of in my, in my entire life. And then to uh, uh, to go out against the world champion, I guess you can look back and say that was a moment that that soccer in the United States really started to uh, uh, to, to take a hold of of people, and that um, you know uh, things were possible. That gave me the chills when you just said that 100,000 people. That is such a cool thing to remember. And when you talk about that 1994 World Cup, you also played in the 2002 World Cup. And those teams, both successful, can you compare the success of those those two teams to one another or contrast it, either one? Yeah, I'd say, you know, the one thing uh, when we went into the first world, uh, well, in the into the 94 World Cup, uh, you know, Bora Milutinovic, the one thing that he did, he drilled us. He drilled us. He, you know, he probably knew that we weren't the best soccer players in the world. So uh, if there's one thing that we needed was to be very, very fit. So when we went into that World Cup, uh, we were extremely fit. We were a team. We knew uh, we knew exactly what we needed to do. Um, it was a it was a small core group that had been together for a longer period of time and ourselves from Europe coming and, and then um, really uh, gelling before that. But then comparing that to the 2002 World Cup with, I would say, a lot more talent on that team, just from a, from a, uh, just from a soccer perspective and a technical perspective, that there was more with that, more on that team to, to, to make an impact. And, and in the end, that that also showed so it's it's very difficult to show different gener- generations and what they you know how one compares to the other because they're just different times uh, but i would say in the 2002 world cup uh, you know one with bruce being at the helm and and being very clear on what he expected from us as a as a as a, as a team um but also just the talent level that we had in the team at that moment, the, the, the mix between young and old at that moment of the, the older veterans as, as myself, but also the young Landon Donovans who came onto the, uh, to the scene with the DeMarcus Beasley's who, who were absolutely amazing in these, uh, in these, uh, in, in this tournament. Um, yeah, was, was, they're, they're hard to compare, but at the same time, I would say that the 2002 World Cup team was, uh, was, uh, was very special. And do you try and bottle up what made those teams so successful and add it to the current U.S. national team players and in their in their squads and trying to figure out as sporting director this is this is what I want to do is take the best parts 
from what I learned during those World Cups and add it to the current current group that, and give them that experience to allow them to to have a successful possibly 2022 World Cup in 2026. Yeah, I mean, I, I, Charlie, I'd say uh, not only the World Cups, but like throughout my career and and and, and as you have probably had as well, and both of you have had as as well, you take you take all kinds of elements from the situations that you uh, that you're in. So from a '94 World Cup to even the '98 World Cup, which was just a disaster from 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 start to finish. But you do take elements from that as well, um, from how to uh, organize a camp and where we were back then, and and later on you understand why we were in the place where we were. Um, due to security reasons as well. But this is not something that was told at that moment. So you take something from there, 2002, the team, young, old, um, and then you translate that uh, with your with the career that I had, one, as a player, and then two, also as a technical director and the experiences that you've had. And then you try, try to take out the best elements uh, of that and then um, uh, implement those into the, the environments that we have these days and, and making sure that our teams are successful going forward. Do you remember 1997? Oh, boy. U.S. versus Mexico in the old Foxborough Stadium. 2-2 draw. This was my first ever U.S. men's national team game, going to the stadium, watching it. I had a, a replica ball from the 94 World Cup that I brought with me. After the match, I'm that little kid waiting, and all of a sudden, you're signing it. Marcelo Balboa signed it, Eric Winalda, and that was like the holy grail for me. I still have it to this day. It's at my parents' place. But I remember just you coming over and signing that ball for me, and I think you you, you said something that just gave me hope, and, and I and I took that back with me. So I want to thank you. Um, if I didn't already tell you that, that uh, you know, that that inspired me and gave me hope and motivated me to hopefully one day play for U.S. men's national team. So thank you that well uh, thank you for the story and i hadn't heard that yet charlie even though we've have uh, we have history <laughs> with each other but th these are the things that, like you know um this is why you want to become uh, a professional athlete at least for myself in in the sense of of what what's important you know it's not so much what what i do every day but also how you can touch other people and and hopefully you've touched other people uh, along the way during uh, during your career I believe also that that team at that moment um, from 94 up until 2002 also understood where we were in in the in in the in the U.S. landscape and what we needed to do to actually grow the sport with each other. And and that needs to happen every single day. It still needs to continue with our with our players as well. And hopefully um, uh, uh, people can be uh, can be touched as as you were and, and that you go on uh, to enjoy the game as much as we did. And and also become a, an international player and, and mean something for uh, for your country. Those are the things that you know. If we could have that happen uh, with 350 million people, uh, uh, we we're going to be in good shape. Right, we could start to change things a little bit. I like that. Um, I love that moment too. Charlie told me about that before, and I was like, we gotta talk about this. It's so special. Um, Okay, going back to the teams that you were playing on, Ernie, between Bora Militilovic, Steve Sampson, Bruce Arena, can you describe the variation of style under these coaches you had for the men's national team? Or maybe a characteristic that sticks out to you? You told us Bora already was someone that made you guys fit. <laughs> yeah, I'd say that was the transition. Um, what I thought Bora was very good at was was – 
making sure that we understood uh, or that he understood what could bring us success. And um, if it was going to be high pressure and, and trying to keep possession of the ball, he probably knew that we were not going to be successful at that time. So uh, understanding the game in itself and, and where we are uh, compared to the rest of the world, um, uh, that was something that he understood. And I think it becomes then a transition towards uh, 2002 of how how uh, the country and, and the players have gotten better along the way. Um, and, and in 98, I believe, you know, we, we went through qualification pretty, uh, pretty decently, but then um, uh, ran into uh, 98, uh, one, very good opponents, but two, also with a lack of a game plan. We changed. We weren't consistent anymore. Um, the way we went through qualification and the way we went into the World Cup were just like two separate separate moments it almost seemed like and and that for me and in the career that i've had now uh consistency and continuity in anything that you do is the most important thing and we kind of lost that there um and then i would say 2002 when bruce taking over like um one a really relaxed person um feels you always feel that he has everything under control um put staff together that that uh, could implement the things that his style of, of play, but also it, it, it went from 94 to being a, a, a reactive counteracting counter uh, attacking team to in uh, 2002, a more forward faced team. And we were still in the moment we were reactive. We were still more counter intuitive um, in the way of playing. However, we did progress up the field a little bit more so we could be more dominant one in CONCACAF but two also uh, during the World Cup, which then gives you just more chances going forward in the 18-yard box of the opponent and, and gives you a bigger chance of winning. If you shoot on goal uh, uh, a couple times, you know, the Portugal game uh, that, that was referenced in my first cap, I don't think we got one shot off on goal um, to where uh, you go to 2002 and now you're in a World Cup and you're getting shots off on goal. And, and, and you know, that, that gives you the... Uh, the possibility to win games. And, and that was the transition that we had over those years. My, one of my favorite U.S. men's national team games is that, that win over Portugal. Who I've heard Bruce Arena talk about you and say, Ernie Stewart is my favorite player that I've coached. Who's made the big, biggest impact in your career or life? <laughs> You're getting deep, Charlie, now. <laughs> hey. <laughs> um, wow. Um, you know, I know it sounds corny, but I would say my father, um, and my father, when I started soccer, he knew absolutely nothing about soccer. He's from Texas. He's football. Um, that's, that's my father. But when I look at his work ethic and how he went to work every day and came home late every day, that actually transcended to me to how I believe that I should work one within soccer and, the, and, 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 and what I do now. So I'd say he's the the biggest influence. And then I have a lot of coaches. I've been in really good environments with really good coaches along the way where Bruce was certainly, and that's always like when I hear things like that, that Bruce saying something like that, I mean, Bruce is an icon in, in U.S. soccer for everything that he's done for the country. So, so for somebody to say that, it really means something. Uh, I've always considered myself a, a team player. Um, and I've had my moments too uh, where I – you know, I wasn't in the starting lineup, so I'd pout like a like a little kid as well. But uh, in the end, I was I was a very big uh, a team player, and I brought people together. I made sure that they gelled. So, actually, what I do now uh, kind of is a replication of what 
I meant for a team at that moment. I think that's the part that that people, um, uh, when they look at back back at my career, the, those are the things that they think about. And I think that was one of the things that um, that Bruce thought was was very important. And you know, he was an important factor in in my national team uh, uh, career because there was all also a moment when. Um, you know, after 98, is it, you know, is he still going to be with the group? Is he not going to be with the group? Do we need to change? And he called me back in, gave me a lot of trust, gave me the captain's band, which if there's one thing that I was proud of, uh, uh, the captain's band was the most proud I've ever been in my life to represent one, my country, and then two, also lead the team onto the field in a world cup in 2002. That was the pinnacle moment. My career could have ended after that. It almost did by the way, <laughs> with the injury, but, uh, it, that was like the moment. So he was very influential. And then I've had a couple of really good coaches here in Holland that helped me um, develop myself to, to the player that I became. Well, I'm glad you touched on that because I'm not sure if you knew, but along with being one of the first black players that was a regular for the U.S. men's national team, you were the only black player to captain the team in a World Cup match, that Portugal match you just referenced. What does that mean to you now that you you look back? I, I told you the story of how you you gave me hope. You, you motivated me because you, along with Kobe Jones, um, looked like me, right? So I could say, "Man, you're." I know I can I can play this sport and and feel comfortable knowing that you are a captain and the the only black captain for for future black players that play on the U.S. Men's National Team. Knowing I can represent I can represent this my country, hold wearing the armband. What does that mean to you? So, I mean, a lot, especially now with everything that's going on in our country, it, it, it means a great deal. At that moment, it was me, Ernie Stewart, the, the, the team player, being chosen as the captain. I didn't think of it as from a, from, a racial, uh, from a race standpoint or anything like that, but me being captain of our, our national team, that is. Now, you know, that you've become older, you start to realize these things, and especially those things that are you know, that are happening in our country right now. And this does come back. And, you know, I grew up in a very, very liberal country in Holland uh, for the most part. But like when it comes to racism, it, it, you know, that has touched me as as a lot of us. And um, it's weird how how your life comes about where um, you're a soccer player and you and both of you probably went through this as well. Like all of a sudden there's no line between uh discrimination, racism, and criticism anymore. It's really weird because you just, you start blocking things off. So, um, and there's been some powerful moments in the last, especially weeks for me that I've started to realize these things more and more, um, how important that that is. And then um, with you saying that, that makes me even prouder um, of that moment uh, in time that I was allowed to lead our team onto the field. And, uh, I, and I remember it vividly because I was so nervous, not for the game, but with the first game, you have to, uh, uh, the dignitaries come onto the field and then you have to introduce all your teammates to the dignitaries. And I was so afraid that I for, would forget a name. So um, that took my my anxiety away from, uh, from at least the game in itself. But um, once again, a really proud moment. And now that, you know, uh, with everything going on, it, it makes it a, even uh, it makes it even more special. What injury did you have that took you out of the game at, at half? So I made a slide tackle um, 
I want to say around the 40th minute, 43rd minute or something like that. And my, my knee got jammed in, um, into the ground. And then, uh, uh, my, my groin was, yeah, I couldn't do anything. Doctors helped me out pretty good though. So after that, I, I still got some minutes in that world cup, but, um, yeah, it was not good. I know how that goes Uh, on the topic of race with all that's gone in the last few weeks, the subject of racism is at the, the forefront for most people in the United States. In or out of the game, have you ever experienced racism or discrimination in Holland or the United States? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, both. Um, you know, once again, it's it's really weird how um, how all of a sudden you, you can't find the lines anymore of what's what's uh, racism, what's discrimination and, and, and what's criticism. And as a, as a, as an athlete, you kind of just bucket them in one thing and you don't listen to them. Uh, but the recent weeks, I have to say, um, those lines have become a lot more clear, uh, for me. And yes, I've, you know, my, my parents have left, uh, stadiums here in Holland because of what happened, um, uh, and what was said on, on, in the stands. And my father is a very proud black, uh, african-american man who uh who worked in the military and and just you know couldn't stand that at all and tried to you know because if if he does something or gets into a fight in the stands uh, obviously that will reflect on his son and his career and all that kind of stuff so they got up and left uh in 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 some cases which is crazy just to protect my little brother who also went to games and my and my sister um that they, they wouldn't have to deal with that kind of stuff so it has happened um, you know, traveling, uh, through CONCACAF hasn't always been the easiest either. Um, not for me, not, but also not for others on our team for, for, for different reasons. Um, so yes, I've, I've come across it and it's, it's, it's amazing to me, um, the way I sit in life and, and look at people and, um, I don't see colors. I don't see, it's just, I see the people in front of me and, and, and the passion that they have for, uh, for, uh, something that they do. But, Unfortunately, we live in a world where um, this is uh, this is this happens, um, and uh, you know, I'm 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 happy with the way people are. Um, everybody's reacting, uh, and I want to make sure that you know I don't support um, uh, uh, demolishing all kinds of stuff and everything. But speaking and 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 protesting for me because um, this, I mean, uh, yeah, I think it's all it's very clear that this has to stop. Yeah. You mentioned just there, you're son of an African-American U.S. Air Force airman, and you have a Dutch mother. Uh, Did you guys have conversations about race relations either in Holland or in the United States growing up? And maybe how how have you used what you learned in those conversations or um, to conversations you're having now? Because I think that if anything's happening right now, especially for me, if I can talk from my own personal standpoint, is just more conversations which have really helped me, um, you know, try to grasp a little bit more of what I can do. Yeah. I mean, um, when I was young, I, once again, I lived in a, in a pretty liberal country, um, uh, when it, when it comes to Holland, once it, it also happened there. Um, I do remember, uh, speaking to my mother and father who, you know, my father's, uh, uh African-American, my mother's Caucasian. Um, and, no matter where they went, there were always people that were looked at at that in those days. And that does, you know, it, 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 it hits you. It's, it's something that you can't imagine that you can't think of. And I was brought up in a, in a world where once again, if you have a African-American father and a Caucasian mother, like it doesn't, you know, this is, 
this is life. This is how it is. And, uh, and, but when we went places, you know, people would look weird at him, at both of them. Why, how can he be with her and, and, and how can she be with him? Like, and that's just weird when you, when you think about it. So you do take those, uh, those conversations. And then once again, in the recent, uh, recent period, um, and, and everything that's happened, you do take that, what I do like, and, and it happened within our, uh, within the Federation as well. Um, a week and a half ago, we got on a call with, with one another and just to hear, um, the, the, the story shared was like really, really touching, which makes you think about, like I said, not seeing that line anymore. And just like anything that kind of looks like criticism, pushing that aside, all of a sudden that has become really clear to me. And I, from my standpoint, one as, as, as myself, uh, and, and father of two, um, uh, biracial kids as, as well, um, want to make my, uh, step in that and, um, and, and help, uh, making this world uh, better, but also from a sporting director standpoint and working for, for U.S. soccer, taking my role in that as well and, 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 and talking about it. Right. Last week, the U.S. Soccer Board of Directors voted to repeal policy 604-1, which required national team players to stand respectfully during the playing of the national anthem. Ernie, as someone whose father served this country for many years in the military, what are your personal thoughts on the repeal of this policy? Well, one, I agree with it um, in the sense that I believe that every human being should be able to express themselves the way they want. Um, that for me is the, the, the most important thing that's, uh, as I lived in Holland, but also in the United States, these are the things that are important for, for our culture and, and, and what we do in, in, in both countries. So that's, that's something I certainly, uh, certainly believe in. So happy that the, the, the board of directors, uh, you know, have um, taken their role in this um, and has evolved. And Cindy Parlo Cohn has played a, a very important role in that. And I, uh, you know, I commend her for uh, for taking those steps. Ernie, I know you're in Holland with your family, but when you get news, or I don't know if you're receiving via television, radio, um, emails, but when you see what has happened and, and transpired within the United States over the past month. Ahmaud Arbery to George Floyd to Breonna Taylor, the police brutality, the riots, the protests, and not only in the United States, but you're seeing protests in Germany, in France, in England. It's racism is a is a global problem, global issue. Um, what are your thoughts as you're reading the news and, and gathering, um, you know, information on on everything that's happening? You know, at first try just disbelief, like seeing videos of this. Like, I mean what are we talking about? Like that, that for me is just in itself is just, is just plain crazy. And then obviously, you know, you, you see the riots break out and, and all that. The one thing I would say is, um, you know, I, I follow it as much as possible with the time difference and everything, but, you know, and, and, and speak to my colleagues in, in, in Chicago and, and how they're going about um, things and what they see in front of them. Uh, the one thing I would say is that this is kind of like the first time that it actually came to Europe in the way that it did. Um, I lived in Europe a long time. If things would happen in the United States for uh, for a part, they would stay in the United States. And it is what you say. It's global. It's global. Here in Amsterdam, um, and I live uh, 20 minutes away from where there were protests as well, it's gone all over the place. So this means it's a, it's a global problem. And and I'm, I'm happy to see that um, uh, 
we're trying to think of global solutions with each other as well. And, and that's where the touch point of soccer and, and in itself is, is, you know, we're in a global sport and it can mean so much for us as, as, as athletes to, uh, to make sure that we're, that we're talking about the right message and, and, and putting things forward in the right manner, in the right way, in, uh, in what we believe in, uh, as, a as a, as a nation, as U.S. soccer, but, um, and, and first and foremost, it, it begins with your own environment, huh? making sure that your own environment is, is, is safe, um, and, and a place where this is not possible. And let's hope that all these organizations that we have one, uh, within the United States, but also to, uh, globally, um, and that we make this oil, uh, oil spill, uh, spread and spread as we go along. You are a black man, a leader in a predominantly white sport in the U.S. Do you think there is enough black representation among technical staffs and front offices and soccer clubs and organizations throughout the country? I'd say there could be more, um, yeah. for sure. Um, you know, and 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 the thing I, I try not to look back, but look forward as much as possible. So for me, right. it's it's more about making sure that uh, this is accessible for uh, for. Um, African-Americans, for Hispanics um, uh, going forward, making sure that there's an entry level for, for everyone to, uh, to participate in the sport that we have, but also create these platforms and opportunities for uh, minorities to be able to be in positions of, 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 of leadership. Um, that's what I, I would say I'm, I'm very focused on uh, now. And that's when, you know, I was talking about uh, playing my role as a sporting director and, and making things uh, uh, discussing things internally about that with with uh, our leadership group and how we go about uh, business, and and once again uh, making sure that your own environment is make, uh, uh, progressing and and making sure these these positions are available going forward. This is two times now. You almost know what we're going to ask next. You you lead us into the next thing. Uh, so we want to talk about that role that you have with as a sporting director, and you know you have the ability to make those changes and help bring about those changes that you were just talking about. But we want to first start back and, and touch a little bit more about your career. You spent all of your career up into a point in Holland. You played two seasons then with DC United. Won an MLS Cup, no big deal, right, in, in 2004. Uh, then you left MLS. You went back to Holland to finish your career for VVV Venlo. Is that right? Is that how you say it? Yep, VVV Venlo. Very good. And then transitioned to the role of technical director there. How did you prepare from that for that switch from on the field to a front office type role? <laughs> um, well... <laughs> You know, in, in the end, it's it's all about people believing in you. Um, so when I came back and I had to retire, uh, I, I woke up out of an operation and uh, and my knee was not going to uh, be with me uh, very long anymore, at least to play uh, professional soccer. So they told me it'd be better to have another career path. Now, I had spoken about uh, when I went to VV Venlo, and, and well-pronounced, by the way. Um, uh, when I went to VV Venlo, we, we talked about things after my career. And one was uh, being an academy director. Uh, but then coming out of this operation, uh, they were in search of a technical director at that moment. Um, and for some reason, Hong uh, Sunjus, uh, and the name doesn't say anything to you, was a, was a person that believed in me and, and uh, the, the, the person I was, the qualities I had, um, and how I thought about, um, one, the team, but also, two, about the organization. Um, and said, I think you'd be very good for this role. So, And I'll never forget my first day. 
Um, they showed me my, my office. They gave me my computer and they gave me the keys to my car and they said, good luck. That was kind of like it. So that's how I started my career. Somebody just believing in me as a, as a person and an individual of, of what I've done during my career, but also in those, those three months, because it was only three months that I was back at Fave Venlo before that happened and then giving you a chance. And then, you know, I, I probably made every mistake in the book at Vevey Venlo um, in a year and a half of, um, but hopefully I didn't make them two or three times. And um, I'm, I'm eager. I'm curious. I want to learn. Um, and obviously everything that I've taken from my career and, and how I looked at technical directors, uh, the things that they did well, the things that I thought they didn't do so well. And I just, you know, I just put them all together and Vevey um, gave me the chance. Then I went to Nakbreda, which was a, a, another a team that I played for as a, as a professional, but went there as technical director. And this was a club where I had to deal with adversity every single day. There was no money. So you had to be creative uh, with your budget and how you went about that and had to start thinking about how can you develop players to, to actually step on the field and win games at the, at the highest level and then transition to Asiologma and became the, the person I am today to think more. This was a club that was in financial trouble, but had a very clear vision of who they wanted to be and what they wanted to do. And no matter what the circumstances were, they always went straight ahead. So consistency and continuity and what they did has brought them to who they are today. Um, and um, also there, I, I would say that is something I'm, I'm really proud of is where they are today within Holland with their uh, youth academy as being one of the best academies in the in Europe and but also these players participating in their first team and winning games and they ended up second in this uh they they uh they uh they canceled the season but they were in second place uh, behind with the same amount of points as Ajax so those are the things that you you know you helped uh the club put in place but that vision that they had going forward was like um has defined who they are today Ernie, it, sometimes as a player, it's, it's hard to think what comes next when you're done because you're you're so focused on the the here and now and and trying to give your best that you don't want to be distracted in thinking about what I'm going to be after I'm done. Did you always know you wanted to be involved in the front office, or no. was there a moment during your playing career you thought, man, I, I should start thinking about what's next? So I. I got my uh, my coaching degrees when uh, degree when I was um, I did that through we have sports schools here here in Holland so I got my coaching degree but I found out coaching was not my thing I'd have to stand in the cold uh, uh, all the time and uh, no that wasn't my thing so I did at at some point like when I look back at my career now I would say it makes a ton of sense what I'm doing um, however at that moment Charlie I I have to be honest too like no. Um, I did put that, have that put in my contract towards the end of my career. So you start thinking about it a little bit more. And uh, when I went to VV Venlo and it was put in my contract that I would be uh, academy director after my career. So I could take those steps in that year and a half that I would still play. Um, yeah, that was something that I did feel that that belonged more to me. And then what I do today, I mean, it's, yeah, nothing gets better. Uh, well, playing was better. Um, that was <laughs> first and foremost was the best thing, but I mean, just being involved in the game and then actually uh, uh, being in the role that I'm allowed to be uh, within uh, soccer in the United States is I mean, thrilling, thrilling. 
one of the things I always think about is, you know, we play sports and they teach us all of these qualities about life, right? Things that we can take and characteristics that we can take and bring with us to whatever we go to next. You had just mentioned when you first took the job as a technical director, you made a lot of mistakes, right? And I think that's one of the characteristics we learn how to adapt from mistakes and not let failures hold us down, but propel us as athletes, right? What other skills do you feel like were translatable from the field to help you succeed in your new career um, as in the front office? So one of the things that, that I thought, and, and Charlie was, was part of that when we were at the Philadelphia Union that I thought was, uh, that, I, that I took from my career was uh, as long as the players know exactly what their roles and responsibilities are and, and not only of themselves, but also of their, their teammates, um, it will help you in the difficult times. We all know what it is. Uh, all three of us know what it is. Like if you're in the flow and you feel really good, I mean, throw a ball in the middle and every, you know, if you have 11 players that are in sync and all feeling it that day, you'll probably win a game, but it's very important when things don't go well. And, 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 and Charlie and I went through that at Philadelphia. What, what was it? Eight, nine games we didn't win. And mm-hmm. there was like total panic of, of, of what there was, but actually going back to, roles, responsibilities, and the jobs that you need to do and making sure that players um, um, keep to just stick to the job. Don't think about all the other stuff, the negative, you know, publicity that there is or, or people whistling at you or what, just stick to um, the roles that, that everybody has. And I, I would say I've taken that from my career that I needed that as a player. Um, I wasn't the most uh, technical player or that I could solve problems just by dribbling like like Messi can or anything. I needed my team to be able to be successful, and I learned that very early in my in my career. So, um, having that connection, making sure that there's also got to be those players that have those special qualities, because you know the Christian Pulisic's of this world and the Megan Rapinos of this world, you need those special qualities too. But eleven of those qualities um, is also difficult in the field but only 11 people that can run out behind the ball is also going to be very difficult. So making a really good mix of that is just really, really important. So I would say roles, responsibilities within a team are uh, that something that I've taken away from, from uh, my, my playing career and implemented them into, uh, into being a technical director and the direction that we have as a, as a team when it comes to our style of play. Ernie, from your career start at VV Venlo, to knock Breda to AZ Alkmaar. What, and you, and you signed Josie and he had a ton of success. So you, you brought kind of Josie back into form. You got him believing again and, and having confidence when he played. What, but what are you most proud of during that ascension from, from Vivi Venlo to Azet Alkmaar? Um, hmm. uh, probably adapting to uh, the clubs. Um, so, like, you know, it's never, it, it's not about me. Um, uh, it's, it's not about the individual. It's about the club, the DNA, the philosophy uh, and vision that they have. And then adapting towards bringing those things into, into, uh, into play and, and making sure that the, the club can be successful. Because it's great that I think a certain way about how soccer should be played. But if the fans don't, don't like it or don't want to see it, um, it doesn't, it doesn't happen. We're also there to entertain and make sure that people come to the stadium. And as soon as long as they can ad- identify with um, 
with uh, uh, the team that's on the field, I think it's a good thing. And that is one of the things that I would say that in all the three clubs, and, I, and I'll take the Philadelphia Union as well, those things ha- um, uh, that we put into place, I would say that there was an identity um, of the team at that moment and, and that people could actually identify with, with that team. So um, that's something I'm, I'm proud of. But like the most I would say, and, and we, I think I touched on it a little bit, is, is AZ Alagma, just going from you know, uh, a club that was bankrupt, making sure that you have a vision making sure that you understand what the pillars are of that. And that was the youth academy at that time. Um, saying that in certain years, we would have uh, a certain percentage of, of, of uh, people that or players that developed themselves within our academy at that time. And um, uh, not only were in the squad, but actually played in the 11 and got results. And to see that now every single Saturday and Sunday when I look back at, at AZ Alagman makes me extremely proud. But I, I would say the same thing for the Philadelphia Union when, when we see Brendan Aronson and Austin mm-hmm. Trusty. And I mean, you know, you, once again, you, you've been part of that and, and, and played a role in the development of these players that, that Austin Trusty had to track you every single day <laughs> and, while you're running into corners and everything. Yeah, that makes him a better player. He has to understand it. So, the combination of those things um, and and giving people chances are are things that I'm uh, I'm, I'm happy about. And Ernie, I'm I'm happy that you you traded for me with the Philadelphia Union. And I told Jordan I was so impressed when you showed up at the airport to pick me up after the trade. That I said, "Wow, this is professional. This this is not what you're accustomed to seeing in, in Major League Soccer." To that point, um, having played for the U.S. Men's National Team, playing in MLS for DC United. You come back to, to MLS, it's it's almost like a 2.0 MLS, right? It's a new MLS. Were there any surprises being the sporting director of the Philadelphia Union? Um, you know, the, the one thing that I would say is that um, the fight to develop talent is uh, that's not only the Philadelphia, that's just like what we have a little bit in our, in our culture in the United States uh, right now. And I, you know, when I look at other sports, they have a certain pathway of getting to American football and, and to baseball. But these are sports that they're not all global. Let me put it that way. This is a global sport and we need to adapt to um, to the, the quality that is delivered um, elsewhere to be successful in, in the United States. And and I, I would say the, the one thing that uh, that came back in all the discussions that I've that I've had and, and still have is like, you know, uh, the development pathway we need to take care of. Um, and, and it's something that we really need to invest, uh, and keep investing in because, you know, it's, it's great that we, uh, look at, uh, you know, I'll say Vlatko Andonovsky and, and Greg Berhalter, and if they qualify or don't qualify for a tournament or don't do well in a tournament, we look at them and they say they haven't done well, but you know, in the end, we're all part of this product. We're a part of this landscape, all of us in making sure that we develop talent, that can actually win games. So when when Vlatko and Greg ask, you know, uh, bring these players into camp, that they're not only good players, they're good players that can actually win at the highest highest level. And 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 getting to there is is something that I feel we as uh, as a country are still uh, working towards. Um, I'm happy to see how from when I played and started playing with the U.S. national team to where it is today. Like man, it's it's gone it's gone fantastic one uh, as a nation and two what MLS has meant and now NWSL has 
is meaning for us as a country, but I think there's a next level. I think there's really a next level. And, and for me, that has a lot to do with the youth development and making sure that we raise the level of players that go into the best academies in our, uh, in our country. And if we can do that, yeah, there will be a day that we, on the men's side, will be world champion. And on the women's side, we will stay world champion for, uh, for a longer period of time. Say that again. I like that. <laughs> I like hearing that. Uh, so those two and a half years at Philadelphia working in MLS, do you feel like those were key years? You know, Charlie mentioned your ascension, right, in Europe through the technical director side. But in Philly, do you feel like that was a step you needed to take? And what did you learn from working in MLS that allowed you to then get the, ultimately get a job with U.S. soccer? So it's for me, it was kind of different. So I, I went through that pathway in, in Holland, but I always had in the back of my head, like I, I've been so proud to play for our U.S. national team. So I always felt like we are this sleeping giant. There's so much more possible. And I want to mean something for uh, soccer in the United States. My first opportunity to came back, come back to the United States was, was the Philadelphia Union. And, uh, and, and Jay Sugarman and, and Richie Graham, um, fantastic people um, to have one conversations with a, a clear perspective of what they thought and, and how they thought about the Philadelphia Union and what they were doing. So I was uh, automatically attracted to it. Then their youth academy system that they have, that Richie Graham and the Graham family, are amazing. So if I would say that to anybody, and Charlie's been there as well, if you're ever in Philadelphia, go visit that because it's really, really special. Um, and then the next, the next part was I was able to now um, progress to the ultimate, and that is being part of U.S. soccer and actually sitting at tables to to uh, to change and help uh, the direction that we have as as one the U.S. Soccer Federation, but just soccer in general in the United States, and that was something that I've always wanted in my uh, in my career when I became a technical director was to go back and mean something for soccer in the United States, and um, that's why I'm still uh, extremely thrilled to to be here. Um, understanding that it's you know one difficult times just with COVID, but also two um, just uh, I, I think we still need have to make uh, some serious steps to uh, to to get to the next level. Almost a year into your role as U.S. Soccer Sporting Director, what are you doing now to organize the sporting side of the federation? So um, the most important part is having discussions, connecting the dots, so making sure that we're all aligned with the with the goal that we have as as U.S. Soccer. Because um, every decision that you make for me has to lead to the vision that you have. And uh, we have amazing people on board at U.S. Soccer that put a lot of hard work and dedication into it. And just making sure that we're all aligned in, in the thought process that we have is is like in the first year, I would say, is the most important part within the sporting director role. And then trans, transitioning to how can we help uh, uh, our membership and our environment and creating standards uh, certifications, uh, low entry levels for minorities, uh, coaching education, because the coach just creating these these super environments for kids, one, to have fun when they when they uh, start playing soccer. And then one will become a recreational player at one moment. The other one will become the next Landon Donovan and Christian Pulisic. Um, but having a single pathway for them, bringing these standards, because standards um, will raise the environments and environments they will make the players. So um, that together with all of everybody that we have within the U S soccer staff should be our, uh, should be our goals for the next, uh, 
next years. Yeah. I look at the the staff that you have, general managers, Kate Markgraf and Brian McBride, president, Cindy Parlo-Cone, and yourself. You talk about those four people. I, I want to sit in a room with you guys and have you guys tell stories about your, your national team days. There's so many caps involved, goals, saves for goals with Kate Markgraf as well. I want to know, how does that, knowing that they have the similar experience, excuse me, similar experience that you do on the national team side, does that help with the conversation and where you guys want the federation to be headed? Well, for sure. You know, the thing is now that you say that we never talk about our careers, like, I mean, (laughs) never. Um, We're always talking about how, how we can try to make things better. Um, I would say you do take, take um, elements from your career and then, um, uh, talk about the situation that we have at hand and how we we're going to try to solve uh, uh, things in the in the future. But um, yeah, I mean, there's a wealth of experience when it comes to uh, to national team uh, perspective and the games that that we've played. And and certainly Brian, Kate, Cindy, everybody takes those elements and puts them in, onto the table at that moment when when we're trying to uh, make sure that the sport uh, becomes better and that we grow the game um, as as we love. Ernie, everyone's craving for there to be international international matches again i can't wait to to see (laughs) the u.s women's national team women's national team play some matches but during the u.s soccer board meeting last saturday we heard that the final round of men's world cup qualifying could change due to the uncertainty over the remaining fifa windows can you give listeners any more insight into the potential format or is there still a chance we could see the hex I think there's still a chance, uh, Charlie, that we could see the hex. There's no decisions uh, made, and there's a lot of scenarios out there right now of what that needs to look like. The hard part about everything is nobody knows what COVID is, is, is you know, what we have ahead of us. So, you know, we've already missed out on the, on the, on the March dates. Uh, we've missed out on the June dates. It, you know, it kind of looks like the September dates at one moment might not be there either. So, the, the possibility of qualifying and losing FIFA dates uh, comes closer and closer. You know, FIFA is talking about adding dates as well. So um, I would say there's still uh, openness to the possibility of having the hex. I would say that that is very much in our interest as, as U.S. soccer, because we've been qualified for the hex ever since, uh, uh, since uh, at least before March, before the windows close. And I think there's four or five teams in there together with Mexico, uh, uh, Costa Rica, Jamaica, uh, that had also qualified. So for us to go through any kinds of other uh, rounds to get to um, the qualification group, uh, I don't think would be fair at all um, because we, I, we we earned that right. However, nobody knows the dates as, uh, as of today and how many uh, and how many dates the FIFA dates that will be going forward. So um, you know I do know that Kate, Brian and myself, and actually we're, we're going to be on a phone call with CONCACAF in, the, in a little bit uh, again, but we have weekly meetings with, uh, with CONCACAF to keep up to uh, uh, the new news that's, uh, that's, that's coming out. If I've learned anything about you in the last 45 minutes, you are very detail-oriented. That's for sure. How do you keep de- that detail orientation right now when there's so many unknowns, right? And continuing to think, how can we advance the U.S. women's national team? How can we advance the men's national team when there are so many unknowns happening in the world? Yeah, I, you know, I, I try not to live in the here and now um, uh, and today, but 
uh, try to look uh, towards the future and, and what the future might be in four and five years and then just uh, um, start tracking back from there and what that looks like. And then uh, together with some amazing people in, in soccer, uh, uh, see what those steps need to be. And once again, like for me, con- consistency, continuity, vision, and then consistency, continuity, no matter if the, you know, if a ball goes inside a post uh, uh, or outside of the post and it goes out, yeah, that's part of the game. That's just what it is. But uh, if, if, if luck is the way to go forward, that's, I, I don't believe in that. So um, trying to have a, have a plan going forward, uh, evolving as well, because there's always a better plan. Um, um, so evolve the game, but don't change your, your vision and direction that you, that you have. Stick to it and we'll be successful in the future. Ernie, uh, I know Serginho Dest is is one of the the rising stars in the U.S. men's national team. Um, he's been linked to Bayern Munich. He's been linked to Barcelona, uh, some of the top clubs in the world. Do you have conversations with him as, as far as, hey, I think you know this might be the right next step for you? And and how important was it to to have those conversations to get him to say, you know what, I want to be with the U.S. men's national team moving forward, and I'm going to commit my future to to the United States. Yeah. So uh, one, I think there's a lot of good work that went on before because it's not so much that, that Greg and myself uh, uh, travel to Amsterdam and sit down with, with Serginho and his father. And that certainly helped, uh, certainly did. Um, however, there was a lot of good work that happened before that. One, um, and Serginho Dest had the perfect storm. He played in every single uh, youth national team that there was. Um, uh, was never somebody who was uh, you know on the bench or off of the bench. He always played. Uh, then got to a place where uh, he was, you know, there, there, were, there was pull for him. Um, but because of his experience with our youth national teams, he actually, uh, Greg and I were pretty confident when we came back from from Amsterdam to to visit with him um, and and see him play against uh, Chelsea against uh, Christian, um, that we were pretty confident that he was going to choose for uh, for the national team. Um, it still has to happen. He has to make that choice. There. So that was one. And especially now when in hindsight, when you hear the amount of clubs that are after him right now. So one, it's already he's playing at Ajax at one of the highest levels that there is. And now we're talking about Bayern Munich and Barcelona. I mean, yeah, so that makes that um, what happened then uh, even better, uh, I'd, I'd almost want to say. Um, and then as you know, he, he's a WhatsApper. I can tell you that. Um, he WhatsApps Greg, he WhatsApps myself. It's not so much that like, if he asks questions, obviously we're there for him and we will, uh, we will communicate in the best possible way. Um, and, and, and help him in the best possible way. Um, but that I'd say he's, he's very quiet, um, about that side. I under also understand the, the negotiation piece of, of everything. And, you know, you can't say too much as a, as a player because things will leak out. And so, um, you know, we try to help and, and guide in the best way. But I can definitely say he WhatsApps uh, left and right. And uh, <laughs> he was very concerned in December that he could go to a basketball game. Uh, uh, so he was texting everybody here in the United States <laughs> to make sure he got hooked up. Of course. And actually, Michael Cameraman hooked him up. So took care of him. Oh, my gosh. That's amazing. Uh, you talk about Dest, an up-and-coming player, a young player for the U.S. men's national team, but I want to talk about U.S. Soccer Development Academy coming to an end. And from your point of view and the Federation's point of view, how will U.S. Soccer change its approach in terms of player development and scouting for the national team programs now? 
Yeah. So, uh, you know, the, the, the DA uh, served its purpose, had a really good role within the within the landscape, especially uh, as I was saying, standards are, are really important to make sure that the environments become better because those environments will make sure that players become become better. I'm happy to see now with uh, uh, with us leaving the DA in the circumstances, unfortunately, uh, financial circumstances that we had leave the DA that now. MLS has taken its role. USL is taking its role in that. The Girls Academy that's coming through, ECNL on the side, and adopting these standards um, that that we thought were important. So that that's one. Uh, then two, I think it needs to. A lot of our top academies that we have in the country are very much from 12 years old, so zone two and zone three, so 12 to you know 19 years of age. And now I think we need to uh, see how we can step down in, into zone zone one between six and 12 years old creating these amazing environments for kids, one, to have fun, but also to be challenged uh, as they go along and, and, and have good coaches and make sure every single child has a really good coach going forward. So that's why coaching education is going to become important, where we can have an influence on these kids in creating those environments, making sure that it's not us telling kids what they need to do. Uh, it's exactly like we were talking about being able to make mistakes and then having a conversation with them, why they thought something and and what you actually find out when when you are uh, connecting with these kids and, and they do make mistakes that actually the thought process that they had was fantastic. Uh, sometimes these kids see things that I in my career never saw. So you learn something with that as well. So uh, once again, I think zone one, uh, six to 12 years of age, make sure that they have fun, make sure that they can uh, play uh, the best with the best against the best um, and, and understanding that everybody has a different pathway. I think that's that's the element that we need to concentrate on. And then there's some other IDs like when it comes to talent ID, because we had a direct influence with the DA um, and now that will become different, but we have some thoughts about um, changing that from a talent ID perspective towards our youth national teams, maybe uh, uh, changing our youth national team concept as well, how we look at that, creating a pyramid there as well. Um, but um, yeah, there's, uh, there's some really good thoughts going forward uh, in this. Ernie, in your current role as sporting director, what is success? Short-term versus long-term. What is success for you? Um, Short-term, I, I guess, you know, the, the simplest would uh, to say is that um, our women's national team wins the, uh, the Olympics. Um, our men's national team qualifies for, uh, for the World Cup. I'd say, you know, that's, that's a short-term success. Um, However, and, and longer term success, I would say, is 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 really broad um, in the sense that I hope at, at one moment that we become world champion on the men's side and, and stay world champion on the on the on the women's side, that they're all players that were developed in the United States that played professionally and or played in academies in the United States and played professionally in the United States and that we have one of the best competitions in the in the world and uh, that. All of our players have been developed within uh, within our way of developing players, um, and that we become world champion. That's long term, but that's a really long term. Um, but I like that uh, as as long as you as long as you know that and what we we're saying, and you work back from there. There are certain steps that um, I would say you know we we need to take. We really need to take so. And and with that, I I'm not even looking only at U.S. soccer. I'm looking at us as the U.S. soccer landscape. Um, you know, it's easy to say we want to become world champion or we want to stay world champion, but there are steps that you need to take because the rest of the competition is not sleeping. Hmm. 
I've loved this conversation. So many good things, but yes. I just have to know, Ernie, is your, is your seat getting hot? Is your seat getting yeah, hot? Yeah, it looks a little warm. It looks you, hot. Uh, yeah. Oh boy. Hey. Yeah. Oh boy. Here it goes. Yeah. <laughs> Here it goes. It is time for the hot seat. The hot seat. <laughs> Ernie Stewart, best player you've ever played against. Paolo Maldini. Oof. Not too shabby. Yeah. Not too shabby. Wait a minute. Can I change that one, man? Yeah. I forget one, man. I can't, I can't forget. Ronaldo. But the Lima, the, so. The, the original. Mm. The we, original. We like to call the original, R9. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. Yeah. Did you ever want the haircut, though? That's the real question. <laughs> I couldn't do that. <laughs> you might have. You might have back then. I might have pulled then. that off. Yeah. The one with that. Yeah, yeah. Best U.S. men's national player you've played with? Claudio Reyna. Who do you admire the most? My father. In the whole world, what is your favorite city? Favorite city in the world. Huh. Uh, wow. I got to do this quick, huh? Yeah. Um, so, San Diego. Wow. San Diego. You're a world traveler in San Diego? Wow, that's a first. I'll take it. I mean, it's easy to say New York, and, and, and I love New York, but there's also a moment when I'm in New York that I have to, after five days, I have to leave again. Uh -huh. um, so I like being there, but there's a moment that I, I, that I would want to go, and I've seen some amazing cities from Buenos Aires, but like when I look at, man, where would you ever want to retire? Like, yeah, San Diego. What is the one thing you own you wish you didn't? <laughs> wow um i can't really think uh think much in that um so the one thing i would say i um they're, they're gonna we have a we have a boat and everybody's said it's the, the the best days is one when you buy a boat but then two when you get rid of it and when uh -huh. i say boat it's a sloop huh so in holland it's not like it's to go over canals so it's a okay. small thing but uh, but the best day is to, to buy it. And then the be the second best day is to sell it. So okay. that's probably, that's probably going to be it then. What is one food you wouldn't want to give up? This is not going to say anything, but frikadel. Frikadel. Okay. So this frikadel. is Dutch. So everybody that that's been to Holland and especially the, the servicemen that have been to Holland, every serviceman that, that went my, with my father to the freight stand in Holland and got their frikandel for the first time, they had, they always wished that this frikandel would be made in the United States. Okay. If you could go back in time, which game would you want to play all over again? With the same result or maybe a different result? You maybe change it. You could possibly yeah. change it. Yeah. Oh, it could possibly change. Yeah. Otherwise, I would have said just – like the Mexico game in itself, you know, when we, uh, during the world cup, it was an amazing game. I didn't even, I didn't start that game, but being part of that game and what the, the rivalry and what happened after the game, like I, I, for sure. But if, if there's a chance that we could lose that game, no chance. No, not, okay. not that one. So if you, if you could change the result, <laughs> so what game would you go back to if you could change the result? One game. Um, Possibly change the result. This is not a guarantee. You, you can play it over again. Um, also, that was smart that he said that. No one else has said that. No. Yeah. So I, I probably want to go back to the '94 Brazil um, game 
Okay. Um, just because I didn't, I don't think, you know, we left the scene against Brazil and it's the, it's the next world champion. Um, but at the same time, um, uh, I thought we could have made a better showing there. It was more like the Portugal game that we played. We ran behind the ball. We didn't have many chances. So like, you know, I, I would want to play. That Not the O2 game versus Germany. <laughs> Were you outplayed them? Yeah. 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 But that game, we actually played like really, really well. Okay. So yeah, I'd, I'd want to play that game again, but like, the game we played really well and the, yeah. the, the, the Brazil game, we did not play well. Okay. And, you know, so I wouldn't go back into, yes, for the result, I'd want to change it. But at the same time, like that one was just, it was disappointing to me. Okay. You just wanted to wear that st- stars Jersey again, huh? Oh yeah. The denim. <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah, the denim. Beautiful. <laughs> nice and lightweight. Light. That thing, be, that thing was so ugly that it became a classic. So that's yeah. that's fantastic. Yeah, I actually want one. Me too. I'm with but you. But lighter, lighter material. <laughs> uh, what's your best childhood memory? Wow, just going to um, my amateur club that I that I played with um, for from 12 to 18. Like I remember those first days, and I was allowed to go on my bike to. Uh, to the to the fields and um yeah no that was that feeling was amazing every saturday morning like knowing that you're going to be able to play and try to score goals and yeah that was amazing feeling we're gonna we're gonna end it with this give me your all-time favorite player wow i mean i you know but it's really hard to choose between them because um, for me, like when I grew up, it was Edson Arantos do Nascimento, so Pele. Mm-hmm. Um, what I've seen Messi and Ronaldo do now is like, it's insane. What they've done over such a long period that it becomes really difficult to choose between these two. Um, however, I would say Messi is the, the absolute natural talent wouldn't have mattered where he grew up, what he'd done. He would have been a professional soccer player. And, and, um, and Ronaldo for me is like, he's almost like the, the perfect example of, of what development can do for, for a player. So I would, I would probably choose Ronaldo just because it, it, you know, it's more of, and I certainly don't want to sound like I'm, I'm even close to him, but like I had to work really hard to, to, be who I was in my career. And I feel he's a really good example to, to kids of if you work as hard as he does um, that you can actually become something like that. And so I, I'd have to say him just because those two, what they do is insane. That's phenomenal. Uh, And I'm with you on that. So thank you so much, Ernie, for joining us and and spreading that wealth of experience. It was, it was, uh, it was an incredible conversation. Yeah, thank you, Ernie. Fantastic. Thank you for having me. Enjoy enjoy the family. Enjoy Holland before you got to come all the way back to Chicago. So, um, again, thank you. No problem at all. Looking forward to it. Stay, stay safe, everybody. What an incredible conversation with Ernie Stewart. Uh, Jordan, I felt like I learned so much about him. And I played under him at Philadelphia Union. And I had never heard those stories um, really good stuff. What did you take away from that conversation with Ernie? 
there's a couple things. One of the things is it, right away he mentioned he might have even been able to play in that 1990 World Cup as well. So that would have been four World Cups if he was recruited a little a little sooner. But his attention to detail, I I said it in the podcast, but that's my big takeaway is to have someone at this role in U.S. soccer with such attention to detail. I think that is the big takeaway for me. I, I love the fact that he's saying, I don't want to look back at the past. I always want to move forward. I want to, I want a better future. I want to think about the present and the future. How can we get to the ultimate goal, which is, like you said, eventually winning a world championship with players that we've developed on our soil, which I thought is, is a, an incredible goal and something that I think is achievable. It's going to take a long time to get there, but I do think it's possible, and I do feel we will win a, a world championship um, in my lifetime. So I'm, I'm excited about the future with him, um, in his current position. And what about our next guest, Jordan? What about our Ooh. next podcast? It doesn't, it, we just keep getting unbelievable guests. Better and better and better. I mean, really all equal, right? I feel like they're such good guests, but this one, um, one of my former teammates, Allie Krieger, oh. women's national team. She's already a legend. Don't you think? She is. She's one of my good friends and it's pride month and we, we get to sit down with her and talk about her career, uh, her fabulous wedding, the, the most famous wedding, uh, of, of all, of all time from what I understand. So I can't wait to sit down and, and hear what she has to say about the current state uh, of U S soccer, um, her career and, and just her relationship with Ashlyn Harris, her wife. Yeah, I can't wait for that. But I want to know too what that was like for her to be away from the national team for a while, then to come back in such a fashion that she did, and to play so many significant minutes at the World Cup this last summer. So uh, we can't wait. It's going to be such a great conversation. We just want to thank you guys for listening and subscribe, rate, review the podcast wherever you listen to it. Charlie, it's beach time for you. So go hit the beach with your kids. It's been so much fun. We will yes. talk to you later. Talk to you guys later. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks, MC. Thanks, Brian. Thanks, Andrew. We are doing it. And see you next time. Don't want to miss the next one.